that was embarrassing me. I was tempted to turn around and see who he was talking about. We have had such a uh, frigid and warm welcome at the same time here. <laughs> Joe had asked me to uh, just give you a little bit of an update. We, we had lived in Indiana. I came to IUP in 1978 to study chemistry. Uh, my wife, Debbie, came to study accounting. And we were here up until June of 2022, I think. Yeah. Uh, so we were here for a very long time, and uh, we just felt God's leading to move south. Uh, part of it was to be closer to our kids, but we also felt like for ministry and everything, that was his calling. So we, we moved last summer, so it's been about a year and a half, and um, we bought a home that requires a lot of work. Uh, it was all that we could afford. You know, the housing market is crazy. We're just outside of Richmond, south of, uh, west of Richmond. And so we've been doing a lot of work on the house. Uh, we've gotten involved in a, a church, Clover Hill uh, Church, that is just vibrant. We really enjoy the church. That's been a great experience. I've been working at uh, building relationships with pastors in the community. And so several of us have started a pastor's network uh, where we're doing monthly prayer meetings, that type of thing. So I'm excited to see some of the people we've met and the things that God's doing in, in Chesterfield County. Uh, we also work with, um, I do some online studies uh, with a group of believers in Pakistan. That's a whole other story, but that's been a really interesting experience. So uh, most weeks I, I do about an hour-long Bible study uh, with a group of believers, and it just, man, it's opened my eyes to a whole other uh, world that's out there. And I'm also, as, as Joe said, continuing to write books, so he already gave a, a plug for Greater Glory. We published this last year. And then I'm working on one, um, it's called the Telios Trail, 30 Topics to Explore for Spiritual Growth. So my passion is to help people grow to spiritual maturity. I feel as though uh, if, if the people of God are not growing to maturity, it ends up hindering everything else, uh, outreach, evangelism, touching the world, everything uh, it really comes back to us growing into the image of Christ. And so just about everything that I do is, is geared in that direction. So I'm excited uh, to have that book uh, hopefully released sometime later this spring. And then uh, I mentioned our kids. We, uh, our son is about 10 minutes from us, him and his wife. And we have two granddaughters, one of them being very new. And there should be a picture somewhere. Uh, so we, we absolutely love being grandparents. That has been... Uh, a delight for us. So it's, it's, it's good to be here. Um, we're, we're growing, we're adjusting, it's been a long, slow adjusting, but you know, in our hearts, Indiana is always going to be home. Uh, this, is, this is home for us, and uh, Saving Grace is just one of the places that has a very warm place in our hearts, and we've got some, some very wonderful, long-standing friendships uh, here, so it's really good to be here. So let me, let me pray as I get into the Word. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, Lord God. We thank you that you, you care so intimately and so deeply, Lord God, for each one of us. And Father, I pray this morning that as I share your word or from your word, Lord God, that you would reveal to us that, that love, that, that intimate love, that deep caring, that deep concern that you have for us, Lord God, and that you would help us to better understand, Lord, your ways, your design for our lives, Lord, that we might align with your ways and that um, 
Lord, you would, you would ex express your glory and your goodness through us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share some of the principles I'm talking about are from this book. This is the other one that we have back there. It's called The Search for Rest. And rest is a really um, evasive or I'm not, it, it's elusive. It's very difficult for us, for me, to, to nail down this issue of, of spiritual rest. Physical rest too, but spiritual rest. And so I want to talk this morning, and the title of my message is Put Your Mask On First. In uh, the winter of 2012, I was sitting on a plane flying from uh, sunny Orlando, Florida. I was at a conference flying back to cold wintering once uh, Western Pennsylvania. And the flight was, um, as I'm sitting there, well, before we, you know how it all, how many of you have flown? Good many, I'm sure. So you all know the spiel that they go through. You know, the flight attendants tell you, they give you the safety thing. And uh, after a while, it's just like, wah, 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 wah. I've heard this. You're going on and on. And, you know, you start to tune it out. Uh, so they're doing the spiel. And uh, the plane takes off, and it, it wasn't very crowded, so I got to sprawl out a little bit, and I was talking to an exchange student from uh, Scandinavia, the Netherlands, or somewhere, and we're just chatting, and, and we're, we're climbing. You know, we're, we're up at about 24,000 feet, and suddenly the plane jolts, and there's this loud bang as a, as a metal tray in the galley hits the floor and, and, and clangs, and then there's this loud rushing wind that all of a sudden begins to blow. And it, it was kind of like the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came, only there wasn't a Holy Spirit, it was just the wind. And, and so we look over, and I'm, I'm sitting in the back, and a seal around the door had broken, and the, the plane lost pressure. So it wasn't like the one that just recently happened where like the whole door came off, uh, thankfully, but it was, it was pretty um, intense. And so... Uh, Chaos almost interrupts, and some people start screaming, and the oxygen masks fall almost immediately, and the flight attendants begin yelling at us, you know, put your mask on, put your mask on. And, and I'm, I've wondered at times, you know, how would I react in a situation like that? Well, I found out that day, and it was like surreal, you know? I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a cerebral guy, so I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at the mask, and I'm looking at the little elastic string, and I'm thinking... What's the best way to put that on? And one of the flight attendants looks at me and says, put your mask on now. And she didn't say it very nicely. Uh, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm, she terrifies me into submission, and I put it on, and the plane goes down, and uh, not goes down, but it <laughs> the, the pilot brings it down to lower altitude, and we landed in Savannah, Georgia, and we changed planes, and everything was fine. But that experience um, taught me something. When, when they give the instructions, the flight attendants give the instructions, they always tell parents that uh, if you've got a child with you, you put your oxygen mask on first, and then you put the mask on the child. And in that moment, man, that made a ton of sense. Because chaos just began to erupt, people screaming, and, and you're wondering what's going on, and all the noise and everything. And I can't imagine what that situation would have been like if, uh, let's say you had three or four parents who put their kids' masks on, and then they passed out. So now the parents would have to somehow deal, or the, the flight attendants would have to somehow deal with the parents, and then you'd have frantic kids screaming and crying and everything. So 
it would be absolute chaos. So there is a real wisdom to this idea of parents, put your mask on, then take care of your kids. But it's not necessarily conscience-friendly because a good parent always wants the best for their kids, and, and parents tend to put their kids before themselves. But in that moment, it's not necessarily wisdom to handle it that way. And so what I found is that with this topic of whether you want to call it self-care, soul care, uh, I'm, the terminology really doesn't matter, so whatever terminology I use, I'm referring to the same concept. But this idea of self-care or soul care uh, is something that isn't necessarily conscience-friendly for us, but it is really important. It's important that we get this right, especially in our day. There are so many issues that we deal with in our day that on a routine basis you see Christians, even pastors, that are having moral breakdowns, that are having physical breakdowns, that are having emotional breakdowns because there's so much pressure that we all face in the world that we live in. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just get into the scriptures a little bit and I want to unpack this concept of, of soul care because it really begins with a mindset. What we do physically and how we handle the situations around us, it all begins with the way that we think. And there's a certain mindset that I think the scriptures carry that we don't always get this right. As a matter of fact, um, it's challenging for us sometimes when you look at the scriptures and there's such an emphasis on being devoted to God and being faithful to labor for the Lord and uh, you know, what's that, what are those words that we all want to hear whenever we stand before Jesus in glory? Well done, good and faithful service, uh, servant. So there's, there's a mindset of spiritual devotion that is essential for us to have. But I've also found that when we have that mindset, when we have environments uh, where it's important, we applaud the labor, but we struggle with the rest. Let, let me use... Joe is an example. Uh, we, we don't want it to happen anytime soon, Joe, but one day your time on earth is going to end and there will be a funeral and a large number of people will come to the funeral and what will they say about Joe? They'll say, man, Joe was so devoted to the Lord and so diverted, devoted to the church and he was available when I needed him and he, he worked almost nonstop for the sake of the gospel. I can't imagine any person saying, Joe sure knew how to rest. <laughs> he rested better than anyone I ever met. What a rester that guy was. <laughs> we don't hear those types of things. And yet, if Joe doesn't learn how to rest well, or if he doesn't rest effectively, his ministry, his work, his service to you is going to be severely compromised. So it's, it's an issue that we really do need to get a handle on. Now, we begin to establish our perspective by recognizing that the Bible has 66 books, but it's really one unified document. So any issue that we talk about, we want to take in context with the entire scriptures. And that's why it's so important when we talk about devotion to God and service to God. Those concepts do not stand alone and apart from the idea of rest. Uh, rest is integral to what we read in the scripture. So let's, let's begin here. We're going to look at Genesis 2, 1 through 3, which I think... Oh, no. Yes. 
I'm not all that talkative, but I can talk a really long time when I get going. So let, let's begin with Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I find this passage to be absolutely fascinating. Why did God rest? Was he exhausted? Can you imagine him, you know, like sitting on his throne and kicking back and saying, creating those humans was so challenging. Hey, uh, Gabriel, would you bring me uh, my pipe and my slippers and a newspaper? I am just, I'm wiped out. I need a bottle of wine. Uh, You know, obviously he wasn't tired. It, It didn't phase him. I mean, all he did was speak. And the entire galaxy came into creation. The entire universe came into into existence. And so there was something else that was going on in this situation. And in particular, he was modeling something for us. He was establishing a pattern for us that he knew that we would need. I'm sure there was more going on than that, but that's a big part of it. And then if, if we go to the book of Exodus, and we read about the first Sabbath that was taken by the people of Israel, we realize that that Sabbath was taken before the Ten Commandments were given. Now, we know that in the Ten Commandments, it says, remember the Sabbath, the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But it's remember the Sabbath. So even before the law was given, God had already commanded his people to take a day of Sabbath rest. And if we think of the timing of all this, that it came right after Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt, there's something really powerful that's going on here with this dynamic. Now, if we delve further into the Mosaic Law, we realize that there were many days of rest that were commanded by God. They were to take 52 Sabbath days each year. They were also commanded to take seven days of complete rest during annual festivals. And then there was a Sabbath year where they were every seven years they were commanded to give the land a rest for the entire year. And then every 50 years was a year of Jubilee. Doesn't this sound oppressive? How many people look at the Old Testament and they think of the Old Testament God as a God who was, who was oppressive and harsh and vindictive? And here he is commanding the people to take time off for their benefit and for the benefit of the land. Now, one of the keys uh, in understanding all of this is there's a a principle in Scripture uh, called typology, where you have physical examples that help to illuminate spiritual truths. And if if you want to understand, if you want to be a student of the Bible and understand the Bible, understanding this concept is critical because under the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, we find so many physical examples that help to illuminate spiritual truths. And um, let me read from Colossians 2, 16 and 17 that kind of lays this out. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So when we're dealing between the Old and New Testaments, we're dealing with these concepts of shadow and substance. 
In the Old Covenant, we find all kinds of examples, physical examples that are actually the shadow. That's where it's backwards. It doesn't make sense to us. But uh, again, I mentioned Israel and slavery in Egypt. The whole idea of them being in bondage to Pharaoh and then God using Moses to deliver them, uh, that gives us a picture of the gospel. It gives us a picture of being bound by sin and then Jesus delivering us. And so we find this all through the scriptures, that there are Old Testament physical examples that illuminate New Covenant spiritual truths. This same idea applies to the Sabbath. The physical day of the Old Testament that was a requirement helps to illuminate the spiritual rest that we find in Christ as Christians today. So if you would approach it, for, in particular, like if you look at Hebrews 4, which is the New Testament um, chapter on, on Sabbath, it just seems so challenging to get. If you approach it with this understanding, it makes a ton of sense. But the idea of the physical Sabbath day, even though it's not a requirement for us today under the new covenant, it's still a really wise thing to do. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and how it affects us. Physical and spiritual rest are very closely intertwined. Um, they have such an, a powerful influence on us. So let's look from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Go back to the beginning when unrest entered the picture. So God rested. We had a state of rest for, for the world. Now Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows in the day you eat of it your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This passage is so vital for us to just understand the origins of, of human nature and origins of the challenges that we face and the origins of the unrest that we all deal with in our lives. And in particular, I talk about what I call the big lie. The big lie, you will be like God. The big lie leads to what I call the, the great deception. You will be like God. Now, the irony here is that Adam and Eve had already been created in the image of God. And so, in many ways, they were like God already. But what the, what the serpent was really saying is that if you eat from this tree, you will be like God apart from God, and he will no longer be necessary. You won't need him anymore. And so, it was really a message of independence that you will be like God, apart from God, and that God will no longer be needed in the picture. So many of our problems come back to this mindset. It's where the roots of our unrest begin. Now, I want to dig a little bit deeper into this. Uh, in, in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, there are two passages that we call um, near and far prophecy where they have a near application, which was something uh, contemporary at the time, but then also something distant or something um, not quite, you know, tangible. 
And so in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, it's addressed to the king of Babylon, but it's also referring to the fall of Lucifer. Lucifer was once probably the greatest of all angels, absolutely beautiful and amazing. And somewhere he got it in his mind, and we don't know any details about this, how this happened, but somehow he got it in his mind that he deserved to be on the throne that God was on. And so we read in verses 12 to 14, Isaiah 14, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Does that sound vaguely familiar? I will make myself like the most high. Now we have good news and bad news here. The good news is there has never been a balance of power in heaven. It's not like the superhero movies where you have good and evil against one another and you're not sure who's going to win out in the end. Uh, there's no balance of power. God easily vanquished and defeated the devil, who is now the devil, Lucifer, uh, and he threw him from heaven. The bad news is that he landed where we live. And he used that very same temptation in the garden to trip up Adam and Eve. And so this mindset that we find here in Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, is something that we all inherit at birth as humans. And we could take that passage and we could kind of boil it down, and it would say this. It would say, I will ascend by my own sufficiency. I will ascend by my own sufficiency. And this, this mindset, I will ascend by my own sufficiency, that comes from this lie that I can be like God, this is at the very heart of our unrest as humans. And if we are going to experience the peace and the rest that God has for us, we have to confront this mindset. And so what I want to do is just take the rest of our time, and I want to address four hindrances to rest that come out of this mentality. And it's fascinating because what I've, I'm going to do it in light of the Sabbath, but you could also explore these things in light of the Lord's Prayer because both of those, the Sabbath and the Lord's Prayer, confront these hindrances, these issues that lead to unrest in our lives. So I'm just going to walk us through this. So the first hindrance to rest is self-centeredness. Let's think about this statement, I will ascend by my own sufficiency. It begins with I. I. What do we know about God? We know that God is at the very center of the universe. And so if I want to be in the place of God, what does that mean? I'm self-centered. I want everyone and everything to revolve around me. Have you ever been to a birthday party with two-year-olds? We don't train our kids to be self-centered. That all comes very, very naturally. We have to train them to be other-centered. And so for, for humans, it's all about self-centeredness and selfishness. And what we recognize is that rest comes from putting God first rather than self first. It comes from putting God first rather than self first. Not even the work of God first, but the person of God, that we put him first in our lives. Out of that comes our rest. This is where we recognize the difference between self-care and self-indulgence. 
I don't know about you, but I've seen people at times, um, you might have a, a young mother or something that says, you know, I, I've, got a, I've got to have a me day. And so uh, I'm going to go to the luxury spa that I can't afford, and I'm going to eat a quart of Moose Tracks ice cream, and I'm going to have a bottle of wine, or maybe I'll just skip dinner and eat a box of chocolates. Uh, that's not self-care. That's self-indulgence. And you know how, you all know how that works. Anybody ever done the ice cream thing? Like it's sitting there staring at you and you think, you know, if I, if I eat that, it's going to be good. And then you eat the whole thing and, and afterwards you feel how? You feel absolutely miserable. You don't feel rested. You don't feel renewed. You feel terrible about yourself. And that's what self-indulgence does. It steals our peace and our joy and our sense of fulfillment. We think the opposite. It's opposite of what we would think, but it actually makes us to be miserable. So when we talk about soul care or self-care, we're not talking about self-indulgence. Uh, we're, we're talking about a healthy sense of caring for ourselves. When I'm selfish, I am elevating my will above all else. But when I am approaching life from a healthy manner, I am looking to God first. As new covenant priests to God, which we, we all are in some capacity as we serve the Lord, our service always is to God first and to others second. It's always to God first. Why is this important? Because as we minister to God through a personal relationship, he restores us, he renews us, he empowers us. It's more of that divine oppression, you know, that when you, when you actually put him in his proper place in your life, it builds you up, it strengthens you, it gives you the ability uh, to serve him. And what we find is that effective service to God always comes from a place of overflow. It's overflow. It's out of our relationship with him that we serve others and that we impact this world. And one of the dangers that we face is that we try to serve and we just do it out of ourselves. We do it out of our own strength. And that is guaranteed to destroy you and to run you into the ground, especially when the needs and the demands are great. Truly fruitful labor to the Lord begins at a place of rest. Everything comes out of that relationship with him, the rest that comes through that relationship, that enables us to serve from overflow. And so what this does Understanding these principles gives us theological permission to rest. We have theological permission to rest in the scriptures. When I, when I was involved with campus ministry, uh, for several years, I actually oversaw other campus ministers. And these were people that, you know, they raised funds to do this. They asked people to support them financially. And they had a mindset that they could never take a day off because they felt guilty that they weren't fulfilling the duties and the obligations uh, that were put upon them and, and the sacrifice that they knew people were making to help them do the work that they were doing. And yet they needed that time off. They needed that time to be renewed and, and, and to be strengthened. So like I said, it, it just doesn't always work in our minds with our conscience, but we have theological permission from the scriptures, not just permission, we have a command that we take time to rest. Not selfishly, but in relationship to the Lord. Doesn't that sound oppressive? This is a side note, but as I was preparing, I, I just felt Lord laid it on my heart. 
some of us, when we look at the Old Testament, we see, we, we have questions. We have valid questions about um, nations being destroyed and, and children killed and, and that type of thing. And it's very easy to begin to look at God. If you don't understand the nature of the covenants, it's easy to look at God and begin to doubt his goodness. And yet when we look at this concept of rest, we see a picture of a God who is so deeply concerned about our well-being and that he commands us to seek him first. But in seeking him first, he fills us and he renews us and he strengthens us and he gives us everything that we need. And at some point, we've got to recognize the goodness of God's character and just understand that maybe there's some things we aren't going to understand, but he is good in every way, and we can put our total confidence in that goodness. So one of the, one of the quickest ways that we can open the door to sin is that we keep our schedule so busy that we don't have time for the most important relationships in our lives. You know, I, I, I pay attention to this stuff. I've, there, there have been some high-profile pro, Christian leaders who have fallen recently. And reading some of their words, some of their accounts, their te testimonies, whatever you want to call it, one of the common themes is that we were so busy. I was so busy that I neglected my own walk with God. I neglected my relationship with my wife. I neglected my relationship with my kids. We can't live at a place like that where we don't have time for the most important relationships. Now, again, if you have a high degree of devotion to the Lord, this might not be good for your conscience. Your conscience might not like it. And again, we need perspective. You know, God calls us to, to do things, to meet needs in this world, but we are called to do it as the body of Christ, which means that you as an individual don't have to do everything. You don't have to be involved in every ministry. You don't have to meet every need. If you try, you will destroy yourself. You will destroy your family. But what you do need to do is walk with the Lord and find your place in the body. What has he called me to do? How can I serve with others, alongside others, and complement the work that they are doing so that together, as the body of Christ, we can meet needs the way that God has intended it to happen? But you, as an individual, don't have to do everything. So there are times when your conscience will nag you and say, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. That's not necessarily the voice of God. Find out what he has called you to do and apply yourself to that. So often, this I, it's not just about self-indulgence. It's about feeling that I've got to do everything, but you don't. Okay, the second hindrance is will. I will ascend. God is sovereign, and those who want to be in the place of God will seek to be in control. They'll seek to be in control. And there are two different elements to this that I see. One is willful control. It's people who, who lust for power. Uh, they want what they want. They don't care what God thinks. They don't care about anybody else. They just want it. But there's another element of control that is much more deceptive, sneaky, tricksy, however you want to talk about it. Uh, it it's challenging for us to get because this, this lust for control has far-reaching tentacles. And oftentimes the weeds of control will sprout in the ground of genuine need. 
Let me say it again. The roots of control will often sprout in the ground of genuine need. Our intentions might be good, but our approach self-defeating. Let me, let me give you an example. And I may have shared this with some of you before, but it, it's just one of the best examples in my life. We have two kids that are now adult children, grown up, and we're pretty happy with them. We like them, all that kind of stuff. Um, the years that they were teenagers were a little bit challenging at times. Uh, anybody that has parented teenagers understands that. And you have moments as a parent where you look at those kids and you just wonder, are they going to end up in jail, prison? I don't know. I'm, I'm not so sure about this. And uh, I had a time when I was especially anxious for our kids. And I would go to God in prayer. And really what was happening was I was crossing the line to where I was trying to control all of their actions, trying to control their attitudes, trying to get them to do what I wanted them to do. And I remember going to, to prayer, and, and the Holy Spirit kind of kicked my butt. He said this, if you want to be God in their lives, it's up to you to change their hearts. But if you let me be God, I'll change their hearts. And that, for me, was a powerful lesson as a parent. I still needed to be a parent. I still had to, to, to be, I couldn't be passive. I had to, to take leadership in the home and, and discipline and all those things. But it set an order in our household that said that his will is first, and we are subservient to him. The children belong to him first. We're, we're stewardships. We're stewards. We're, we're, we're parenting them. But it all begins with God's will rather than my will. And this, this principle applies to any element of leadership in life, to, to leading a church, to, to leading at work, wherever it would be. When we lead, we welcome God's will, and we serve as representatives of that will. But there is such a temptation for us to put our tentacles of control into the circumstances, and it becomes our will. It becomes what I want. And so we begin to manipulate, and we begin to, to intimidate, and, and, and so many different ways that we try to get our way done. And especially what's so hard about it is so, so many times the needs are genuine. They are genuine needs. But if we do not approach it from God's order, we will make the situation worse. So for me, that was a powerful revelation. This is where a healthy prayer life thrives. We surrender our will to his lordship. And in doing so, we welcome his kingdom and the life that goes with it. We surrender our burdens to God. We take the cares and the weights that we carry, and we bring them in prayer before the Lord, and we let him take that weight off of our shoulders. We release our work to the Lord. And this is one of the powerful things about a Sabbath day is that it forces me to let go of the work and to turn ownership back to God. What I found with, with my ministry is that if I don't ever take time off, I begin to grasp it like it is my ministry. And it begins to dry up and shrivel because it doesn't have the life of God. But when I take time off, when I disconnect, I just spent three days chasing deer in the mountains of hills of uh, Clearfield County, exhausting myself. But I disconnected from the work of the ministry, and it gave me an opportunity to turn it back over to the Lord, to let go, to disconnect. And there is life in it when God is the owner of it. But when I try to control it, I destroy it. 
Again, this applies to just about every area of life. The third hindrance to rest is self-exaltation. I will ascend. I will ascend. And this, this to me is, is fascinating. I'm not going to go into a ton of depth. I could, but uh, there, this is where the concept of righteousness enters into the picture. This idea of righteousness means essentially that we have right standing, that we're viewed favorably. And our human mindset is that we attain righteousness by meeting standards. So if I, if I climb this ladder, I'm meeting these standards, I can be a righteous person. And there are two elements to this. One is kingdom righteousness, where if I do certain moral things, if I go to church, I put money in the offering, then God will accept me. And as, as evangelicals, I think we kind of have a handle on this. We understand that nobody can be righteous in the eyes of God. Uh, and so we, we're pretty good here. But the other element is what I call social righteousness, where we're looking for approval amongst our peers, and we seek to measure up to standards so that we can get at that approval. That whole process is just about as exhausting as trying to, to be righteous before the eyes of God. And it, it destroys our souls in so many ways. We see this especially in young people. How many tears have been shed because a young person doesn't hit all the markers for popularity in school that everybody else does? You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's this pressure to conform. It's this pressure to measure up. And what I have found is that churches, where there's a high degree of devotion, can also struggle with these issues. How much time do I spend in the Bible? How many verses do I know? How much time, time do I spend in prayer? How many meetings do I go to? How much do I give? Now, these, these are all important things, so I'm not saying that there's a problem with them. What I'm saying is the mindset, when we begin to use these as standards so that we can feel good about who we are as a part of the church, we have just crossed the line. And we begin to destroy our own souls, and we begin to create unrest within us and between us. And so getting this, these, these motives right is so important that I'm not looking to ascend. I'm not looking to gain approval. I find that through my relationship with the Lord, through the cross of Christ. And so because I am secure in him, I can respond with love. Love becomes my motivation for the things that I do. And there's a purity and there's a life that goes with it. Again, coming back to the Sabbath, there's something powerful when we take a weekly day off and we cease producing. For some of us, that is a really hard thing to do. How many are list people? Where you make lists and if, you know, I'll have days when I do something, if it wasn't on my list, I'm putting it on the list because I want to feel better about what I did that day. When, when you get into the habit of taking a weekly Sabbath, you're not producing. You're not doing anything to make you feel good about yourself. And when you do that week after week, it trains you to look to God as your source of identity, that I'm not gaining my sense of self-worth from what I do. I'm gaining it from my relationship with him. That is so powerful and so freeing and so renewing for the soul. And then finally, Number four, the fourth hindrance to rest is self-sufficiency. I will ascend by my own sufficiency. You know, the idea of self-sufficiency is, is such a, um, 
I don't know how to say it nicely. It's a, it's a stupid lie. God alone is self-sufficient. God alone needs, he relies on no one. He relies on nothing. He doesn't need air to breathe. He doesn't need water to drink. He, he is self-sufficient entirely. But we are reliant. We're reliant upon the air and the water and the food and other people and, and that type of thing. Uh, and yet, there's a pride, a pride within us that wants to be self-sufficient. And we know from Scripture, James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so our self-sufficiency works against us when it comes to this topic of rest. The key to doing well is receiving well. The key to doing well is receiving well. And so in this relationship with God, when we practice times of Sabbath, what we are doing is we are coming to God and we are sitting at his feet, we are honoring him, we are worshiping him, and he is filling us, he's renewing us, he's giving strength and wisdom and grace and, and everything we need to do the things that he's called us to do. So when we do this as a pattern on a routine basis, we can get into these rhythms of life where we're drawing from God and we're serving others. We're drawing from God and we're serving others. The key to doing well lies in receiving well. So when we, when we get into a pattern of taking Sabbath times, taking times off, what we are doing is we are learning to draw upon heaven's account. We are moving beyond our own sufficiency, and we are drawing upon heaven, upon all that God has for us. And as we do this, what happens is that mindsets begin to change. Spiritual strongholds begin to break. And as that happens, taking a day of rest actually becomes easier for us to do. And then as we learn to take that day of rest, it reinforces the spiritual rest. And so the mindset works together with the physical practice. They go hand in hand. Now, if you're anything like me, life is full of ups and downs. Uh, I, am, I am challenged with this idea of rest. I am challenged by this idea of the Sabbath. And there's this temptation to feel like I've got to do this perfectly. And the reality is that you can't. Uh, I've heard it said that uh, the Sabbath isn't about resting perfectly. It's about resting in the one who is perfect. And so that's what we want to learn how to do. We want to learn how to, to rest in him. And I want to share one final passage from Hebrews chapter 4, uh, which is the, the passage on rest, the chapter on rest. Uh, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. I just want to share a mindset that has helped me with this issue of the Sabbath and in life in general. It says, since then we have received, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I think we have this tendency to think that if I'm doing well, I can come before the throne of God. You know, I've gone to all the meetings at church, I've given money, I've tithed, I've, maybe I led somebody to the Lord this week. And so we come to God's presence feeling good about things. But we also have times when we fall on our faces and we do really poorly. And there is a time, there's a temptation during those seasons that we avoid the presence of God because we feel like we're not worthy. The reality is that we are never worthy. 
And when we come to him with confidence because we're doing well, what we're doing is we're resting in our own self-righteousness. And so what I have learned is that whether I am killing it spiritually or whether I'm getting killed spiritually, I come to God with the same absolute confidence because my confidence is not in myself. It is in Jesus as my high priest. It is Jesus who, who came to earth, who suffered, who died, who went through what he went through so that I could be forgiven, so that my relationship with God would be renewed. The last thing that I want to do when I'm struggling is run away from God, is avoid him. It's the worst possible thing that I could do. And so I have learned to come with him with the same measure of confidence and security no matter how much I'm struggling. And so in our high priest, we have... We have someone who died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. We have someone who has given us direct access to the throne of God. This whole concept of Sabbath rest is possible because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And through his life and his suffering on the cross, we have someone who understands us. You know, have you ever seen those commercials, He Gets Us, talking about Jesus? I know there's some criticism about what all they present and everything, but the basic idea behind it is that he does. He gets us. Jesus lived as a human. He knows the struggles. He, he faced the temptations that we face. And when he died on that cross, when he took upon the sins of the world on that cross, he took upon himself the, the brokenness, the anxiety, the depression, everything that we, we deal with, he took upon himself. He understands us. The God who created the universe understands your most intimate, silent struggles. And so you aren't just going to someone who is, who is pure and righteous and holy and true. You are going to someone who understands intimately and who can respond to you with a spirit of gentleness. So this whole concept of soul care of rest. It comes back to, to what Pastor Mark shared at the beginning. One thing that I desire, that I would know you, that I would be with you, that I would walk with you. That's really what's behind it all, the Sabbath, the Lord's Prayer, soul care, self-care, whatever you want to call it. It all begins with our intimate walk with the God who created us. And out of that relationship, we are filled with his abundance, and out of that overflow, we serve the world around us. This is the mindset that I hope that you can adopt and recognize because that's the way that life works. Let me pray. Lord God, your, your goodness, Lord, your goodness is just beyond our imagination sometimes. And Father, as we, um, as we close today, we recognize that there are times when we have just adopted mindsets that are not good, that are not healthy. Lord, where we've taken mindsets of, I want my way, I want my will, I want to be in control. Or, or maybe we've been driven by conscience or been driven by guilt. Or, or maybe we've just exhausted ourselves, Lord God, with a sense of obligation and a sense of duty. Lord, we recognize today that, Lord, you are good, that you care intimately about every one of us. Lord, that you understand our struggles, you understand the difficulties that we, we each face. 
And so, Lord, as we begin this year, we desire that we would begin it with a new mentality, Lord God. We desire that we would recognize, Lord God, the rest that we have in you and that you would train us, that you would lead us, Lord God, into this rest, that you would teach us to abide in this rest, Father God. Lord, help us this year to practically live out a relationship, Lord, where you are first and foremost in our lives. And we know that everyone will be blessed as a result. We thank you. We bless you. In the name of Jesus, amen.